Jesus wasn't saying you're never going to have trials again. And Jesus is not telling you as a Christian you won't have trials. But what He is telling you is that in spite of your trials, if you have Jesus, you have permanent peace. Permanent shalom. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. John's County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. And I want you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. We're looking at really two accounts here in Mark chapter 5. And um, the healing of Jairus' daughter, which really was a raising of her from the dead. And also the healing of this woman with the hemorrhage. Last week we looked at the raising of Jairus' daughter from the dead. And this week we want to focus on the healing of the woman with the hemorrhage. But let me pick up in Mark 5, beginning in verse 21. Let's hear the word of God. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. This is the word of God. Please be seated as we bow for prayer. Our Lord and our God, we are struck with utter amazement at the power of your Son, Jesus Christ, in the reading of these healings. If we are not careful, we can, because we are so used to hearing about the miracles of Jesus, we can be numb to the power that had never been seen in the history of the world until Jesus' incarnation. So Lord, we know that in our weakness, in our apathy, Lord, in our distractions, we cannot feel the full force of the weight of your word. But Lord, we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, that would not be true today. Help us to see the glory and the power of Christ. We ask these things 
as we look at this text in his holy and blessed name we pray. Amen. Well, for those of you who have been with us, we uh, began a journey really at the end of Mark chapter 4, going now into Mark chapter 5, where the gospel writer, Mark, gives to us really in an amazing way the power of Jesus. The power of Jesus. Mark has been intent to show us the power of Jesus over several things. First, the power of Jesus over disaster. We saw Jesus calmed the storm with the disciples in the boat, calming the wind and the waves. Jesus' power not only over disaster, the storm, but also Jesus' power over demons. That is the sinister, because when he got to the other side of the lake, there came this crazy, maniac, demon-possessed man that had 6,000 demons circulating through his soul that Jesus cast out into a herd of pigs that killed themselves as they rushed down the slopes into the sea. We then saw last week Jesus' power over disease, that is, over death itself, in Jairus' daughter who was sick unto death, and Jesus raised her from the dead. And this morning we're going to see Jesus' power over disease again in the healing of this woman with the flow of blood. The account began, as we saw last week, with Jairus being filled with fear. He rushes through the crowd to Jesus as Jesus now makes his way back to the western side of the Sea of Galilee to his headquarters there in Capernaum. And the account begins with Jairus being filled with fear. The account then ends with Jairus being filled with joy as Jesus goes to his home and raises his daughter from the dead. But in the middle of this was the healing of this poor woman that we just read about in Mark 5, verses 25 through 34. These accounts really are so stirring that they hardly need an introduction. It's best to just let Mark tell the story. It's best to let this drama unfold to capture the amazing power of Jesus. His power over disaster, the storm, his power over demons, the sinister, his power over death, the greatest of all sorrows, and now his power over disease, that is, the sickness of this woman. The episode of this poor woman with a hemorrhage reveals, I think, Jesus' power to save the most desperate of sinners. We saw the desperation of Jairus last week. We see the desperation of the woman this week. And I would put it to you this way. If you look with me at verse 43, after Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, it says that he strictly charged them, that is, the little girl, her parents, and the three disciples who were with them, that no one should know this. And he told them to give her something to eat. We saw at the end of the account last week that Jesus strictly charged that this Otherwise, public miracle, because everyone knew that she had died, a funeral had taken place. This public resurrection was to be made private at the orders of Jesus. If Jairus' daughter being raised was a public miracle made private, then the healing of this woman with the hemorrhage represents a private miracle made public. She wanted to remain anonymous, didn't she? She wanted to hide 
from anyone knowing that she had been healed. With Jairus, Jesus said, this is public, we're going to make it private. With this woman, she said, I want it private. Jesus said, no, it will be made public in order to glorify the Son of God. Now, this episode opens to us in five points. I want you to notice with me, Mark begins the story by telling us of this woman's painful desperation. Her painful desperation. Those words in verse 25, there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. That really picks up in the middle of the narrative, right? We saw in verse 24 that Jesus was already en route to Jairus' house at Jairus' request to heal his daughter before she died. He didn't know at this point that she was going to die. The crowd, as verse 24 says, was great. That is, the crowd was growing, and it followed Jesus and thronged about him. It's interesting there in the Greek that the word thronged indicates the fact that the crowd was pressing in on Jesus and crushing him, as well as Jairus. This woman sees all of this going on. She has her moment of desperation. There are superficial similarities connected between Jairus and this woman. She had a discharge of blood for 12 years, as verse 25 says. Jairus had a daughter who was 12 years old. His daughter was on the brink of death. This woman was on the brink of death. But the differences between them are far more pronounced. As we said last week, she was an outcast. He was a high-ranking synagogue official. He helped operate religious worship. She had been excommunicated from religious worship due to her uncleanness. For 12 years, Jairus had only good memories of his daughter. For 12 years, she only had agony and misery. But the thing that brought them together is they both wanted Jesus. The thing that brought them together is they both had faith, imperfect though it was. The thing that brought them together was they were both desperate. She was painfully desperate. And here we see again that Jesus was interrupted. He was interrupted after he got out of the boat by Jairus, who came and met him to his face. And now he's interrupted again as he's in route to Jairus' house to perform a healing, which will actually become a resurrection, and he's interrupted yet again. Jesus is constantly interrupted in Mark's gospel. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus is interrupted while he's praying. In chapter 2, he's interrupted while he's preaching. In chapter 4, he's interrupted while he's sleeping. In chapter 8, he's interrupted when he's conversing with the disciples. In chapter 10, he's interrupted while he's traveling. But Jesus used these so-called interruptions as a launch pad to demonstrate both his patience and his power, which revealed his deity. His patience to meet people's needs in a moment's warning, his power to meet people's needs in a monumental way. This reveals his deity. He could use what we would view as an interruption as a moment to reveal his glory before the watching eye. But from Jairus' perspective, don't forget, this meant more anxiety than anything else because this woman, whoever she was, and he didn't know her, was infringing on the hope that his daughter could be healed before death. It's difficult to know whether the woman was aware of Jairus' desperate situation, but she was well aware of her own desperation, right? It's difficult to know the exact nature of the woman's condition, but she knew her condition well. This discharge of blood that she had for 12 years could have been constant um, or it could have been periodic. This is clearly some sort of menstrual issue 
which meant that she was overcome with physical torment. Verse 29, if you skip down to that, calls it a disease. Uh, That's the Greek word mastix, which uh, literally means a scourging or a whipping or a lashing or torment. It's the same Greek word that's used in Hebrews 11.36 to describe the saints who had faith who were beaten or flogged. Her body had taken a beaten, beating through the loss of blood, and she was near death. So there was physical torment. But there was also spiritual trials associated with this issue of blood because Leviticus 15 would have categorized her in the category as someone in society who would have been deemed unclean, socially an outcast, religiously excommunicated from the synagogue. Here is the irony. Jairus' daughter, he had raised in the synagogue... He was one of the elders there. He had raised his daughter there for 12 years. This woman had been excommunicated from the synagogue for 12 years. Because according to the law, a woman, even seven days after her time of the month, was considered unclean. And if it was a protracted issue of blood, the woman would re- remain perpetually unclean. You can read about that in Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 15, verses 9 through 27. Furthermore, the Bible said, according to Mosaic law, that anyone who was uh, in contact with her during this period of time would also be rendered unclean. That's why when you read Josephus's Antiquities, he points out the fact that women with this sort of condition, whether temporary or permanent, were excluded even from the temple grounds. You weren't allowed on the temple grounds. So get this, by all accounts, this woman was painfully desperate physically desperate for deliverance, socially desperate for acceptance, spiritually desperate for assurance, emotionally desperate for assistance. And so we read in verse 26, the depth of her desperation. It says that she had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She may have had a constant flow of blood, But everything else in her life had dried up. Medically, she was drained. Verse 26 says she had suffered under many physicians. This doesn't indicate any malintent on the part of the doctors, but just that she had went to a number of doctors, spent her money, and they could not find a cure. Even doctors are imperfect, and that's the point. There's only one perfect physician. Some are clueless. People change doctors all the time, even in our own day, not necessarily because of malicious or nefarious motives of a doctor, but maybe a lack of competence or inexperience, a lack of skill. This is in no way, shape, or form demeaning medical advancements even in Jesus' day because the Jews were actually far more advanced than many others in the world. For instance, they believed in the power of prayer. They believed in the power of prayer. Ahaziah was a king of the northern kingdom, and you remember that he went to Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, to seek healing because he had fallen through a a lattice in his upper chamber and became sick unto death. And God sent Elijah the Tishbite to this king of the northern kingdom to say, you will not be healed of your sickness because you did not call upon the one true and living God. You went to a false god. God was under no demand to heal the people of other nations. But the Israelites knew that He was a God of grace and would heal them. They were people of prayer. 
much more so than scientific advancements. They are also people of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments uh, offer, at least in some measure, a preventative against, we could say, venereal diseases, for example, because of the prohibition to commit adultery, immorality, which um, also included in those Ten Commandments was to worship only one God. Many of the worship practices of false gods included not only spiritual adultery, but also physical adultery through orgies. Circumcision also had hygienic implications in the Jewish society. An emphasis in trusting God to prevent mental exhaustion, stress, and worry. For example, Isaiah 26 says, You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. Trust in the Lord forever. God had even told Israel in Exodus 15.26, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in His eyes and give ear to His commandments and keep all His statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. So there was trust in the medical advancements of the day. There was also trust in God that if you did things God's way, obeyed God's law, prayed to God that you could be healed. Far more advanced even than our own society, at least from a spiritual perspective. But this woman was medically drained. She had gone to every doctor. They couldn't find a solution. Verse 26 also tells us, that she was financially drained. It says that she had spent all that she had. In Luke's account, he says in Luke 8.43, she spent all her living on physicians. This would have included medical bills for services they provided, and I think it also would have included various home remedies that she pursued. Interestingly, the Talmud, a little Jewish document, said that there were 11 remedies to stop a flow of blood. Proposed lotions, motions, potions, solutions galore, like drinking a concoction of Alexandrian gum the size of a small silver coin along with wine, or taking three pints of Persian onions and boiling them with wine to drink, or sitting at the crossroads of two two roads and an intersection holding a cup of wine and having someone come up behind you and scaring you, saying, Arise from your sickness. All of these were superstitious. It's hard not to see that all of them involved wine, which obviously, if you drink enough of that, that would make you feel some good, at least temporarily, but no ultimate and eternal solution. And that's what Mark wants us to see. She was at the end of her wit's end. Medically drained, financially drained, emotionally drained, because the end of verse 26 also says she was no better, but rather grew worse. Time and time again, getting her hopes up to be let down again. She tried doctors. She tried to help herself, but her condition was clearly incurable. She was relegated to the status of a leper, unclean, an outcast, only able to maintain a relationship with her relatives if she followed social distance requirements. Her health, her wealth, all lost. She was at her wit's end. And so Mark reveals to us her painful desperation, and after that he describes to us her planned 
decision. Notice with me in verses 27 and 28, her painful desperation gives way to her planned decision. She was medically drained, financially drained, emotionally drained, so she came up with a plan. Verse 27 says she had heard the reports about Jesus. We'll stop right there for a moment. She operated on the knowledge that she knew that Jesus had cured other incurable people. That was the foundation to her plan that she concocted on this day. She had no other hope but Jesus. Luke 8.43 tells us that she was aware no one could heal her. Luke says she could not be healed by anyone. She had come to that conclusion through everything she had tried. But maybe Jesus could help. And so she sees Jesus in the crowd. And um, she, as verse 27 says, came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. Now there's obviously more here. She's clearly taking advantage of the jostling crowd. Perhaps uh, maybe she's taking advantage of the fact in a manipulative way that Jesus is distracted by his concern for Jairus, and so she plots to secure a healing, notice this, apart from anyone noticing. Verse 28 reveals something of her thought processes. Notice your Bibles. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. We don't know exactly what her thinking was. Was this superstitious thinking or was this spiritual thinking? We don't know the depth of her faith because in the ancient world it was believed that um, if you saw a great warrior or a great king and you somehow placed yourself in their presence, you could receive the aura or the power that came from them. This happened all the time with Alexander the Great. People often mobbed him to receive his power mystically, superstitiously, by touching his hands or even, get this, his garments. But due to this woman's uncleanness, she's not going to rush through the crowds and meet Jesus to his face like Jairus did. She's going to come from behind. This is a smart woman. She decided to touch, notice it says, his garments. We could say just his garments. She clearly had faith. You could read it this way. If I touch even just merely his garments, I will be made well. She was seeking a private deliverance, wasn't she? And although her faith was not fully developed, it was real, it was present, and in some measure, perhaps stronger than the faith of others. For example, in chapter 3, in verse 10, if you turn back there, there was the uh, belief circulating that he had healed so many, verse 10 says, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. There was the widespread belief that if you just touch Jesus, you could be healed. Matthew 14.36 goes on to explain that others later would try to touch the fringe of his garment. But perhaps it's true that she's the one that started this trend. Others sought to touch him. She said, I don't even need to touch his flesh. All I need to do is touch his garments and not merely his outer robe, but just the tassels that flow from the corners of his outer robe. It was later believed that if you got in the Apostle Peter's shadow in Acts chapter 5, you could be healed. 
This has led many throughout church history to wrongly endorse such as that that the faith healers promote through the use of handkerchiefs, other items that you can be made well. The Roman Catholic Church is filled with all manner of superstition, especially during the period of the Reformation, with their collection and promotion and parading around of relics. Even in our own day, there are superstitious myths about receiving the power of God that are groundless, like many years ago, the Shroud of the Turin. But what is clear is that technically it wasn't his robe she sought to touch, but the tassels hanging from the bottom of his robe. If you turn with me to Luke chapter 8, we see this in Luke's account, Luke chapter 8 and verse 44, very careful language. Luke describes what is meant when he says that she went and touched the fringe of his garment. The fringe of his garment. The fringe of his garment would have been the four wool tassels that hung from every Israelite's robe who was being obedient to the Bible. The Bible said in Numbers chapter 15, Deuteronomy chapter 22, that you were to wear tassels. They were blue in color, at least one of them. And they hung from every Israelite's robe. They reminded the people of God of the law of God. That's what they represented. But they also represented the fact that if you were an Israelite, you were part of God's elect. This woman seeks to touch the fringe of his garments, the tassels. As Jesus walked to Jairus' house, those tassels would have freely swung from his robe. And if she crouched low enough, perhaps crawled, she could simply reach out and touch one tassel and she would be made well. That was her thinking and that was her faith. She did not know that she was one of God's elect, but Jesus knew that. Later, Jesus would reveal that he knew that she was one of his daughters. And he would find her in the crowd because Jesus always finds his elect children. Though not allowed to participate in temple or synagogue worship, there's something else here. As a Jew, she would have been aware of the fact that touching um, holy utensils, or for example, Exodus 29.37, touching the altar of the tabernacle rendered one holy. Exodus 29.37 says that the altar shall be most holy. Whatever touches the altar shall become holy. So, it's possible that this woman is filled with superstition, but it's also possible, just possible, that this woman knows her Bible and she sees something in Jesus of a holy aura where she recognizes Him as a representative of God. And she knows that from Him comes the power of God she wants to be as close to God as she can possibly get. In fact, verse 27 offers the identity of a true disciple because it says she heard Jesus' voice, she came to Jesus, and she touched Jesus. That's true of all of God's elect people. They hear the voice of Jesus, and they come to Jesus. And they are touched by Jesus, and they touch Jesus. I'm not suggesting that her faith was perfect, but it was present. 
She concocts a plan rooted in the foundational knowledge of what Jesus can do, and she makes the effort to at least try it and see if it works. And beloved, you need to understand this morning that nobody has perfect faith. And if you are waiting to have perfect faith before you trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you will never receive it. This woman had faith. And as we're going to see, she's rewarded for the smallness of her faith because at least she had faith. But Jesus, although He doesn't know at first who exactly it was that touched Him, He is aware of the fact that whoever touched Him had faith because this elect child of God, as the episode moves on, leads us from her painful desperation and her planned decision, number three, to her private deliverance. Her private deliverance. Verses 29 and 30. At first it appeared she had been successful because in a moment... She was healed without anyone taking notice. Verse 29, And immediately, the Bible says, the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. The tense of the verbs reveal the immediate and complete healing that she received. The verbs dried up and felt are aorist tenses conveying completed action. And that verb healed is in the perfect tense which showcases a permanent cure. A permanent cure. No more blood. This disease, as verse 29 calls it, this scourge, this torment, was instantly gone. The power of Jesus in an instant removed the pain that she had felt for 12 long years. Immediate and complete. It's hard to imagine what she must have felt In that moment, she had probably forgotten because 12 years had passed by what it felt like not to have a flow of blood. She knew in a moment she had been healed. It's hard also to imagine the fear she must have felt because for a moment uh, the plot seemed to work, but uh, it would not remain private for long. Not this healing. As her pain subsided in her body, Jesus sensed power to part from His body. Notice verse 30. And Jesus, perceiving in Himself that power had gone out from Him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched My garments? Very interesting. She thought this was going to be a one-way transaction. It was two-way. As she touched Jesus... And he felt her hurt. She felt his healing. His power departed from him. And he would not allow her to remain hidden. She touched his tassel. Jesus turns, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him. It's amazing, isn't it? Jesus is so powerful. Get this. He didn't even try to heal her. It just happened. He said no words. He didn't touch her. She didn't touch his flesh. She grazed one of his tassels and she was healed. It's important, however, to understand that Jesus did not know the identity of this woman. 
Jesus' willful limitation of his human side in the incarnation does not in any way nullify his omniscience prior to his incarnation or after his resurrection. That's important to understand. Hebrews 1 is clear. Colossians 1 is clear that Jesus is the creator of all things and he is also the sustainer of all things. He is the one that restored this woman, even though in a mysterious way, he didn't even know who she was. Jesus was very much a part of this healing, though his awareness of who it was was apparently limited. There is a little Latin expression, vera homo, vera dos, truly man and truly God. We affirm both of those things, right? On the one hand, he lost nothing of his divine nature, even in his incarnation. His divine nature stayed divine, his human nature stayed human. The human nature was not deified, as R.C. Sproul says, and the divine nature was not humanized. So there's mystery here, but in his human nature, get this, he was not fully omniscient all of the time. He didn't always know all things at every moment in his incarnation. Um, There were times in which his divine nature gave information to his human nature, For example, in John chapter 2, we read that Jesus on his own part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus could read people's hearts. He could read people's hearts. But like the time he went to get a fig from a fig tree and he saw it from a distance and he didn't know that it was withered and when he got there it was withered, that was Jesus' limited knowledge. His divine nature did not reveal to him in that moment that the tree was withered. Otherwise, he would not have walked up to the tree to seek fruit. There are other examples of this. Matthew 24, 36 is the most famous. Speaking about the coming of our Lord concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, for the Son doesn't even know, but the Father only. The Father only. And if you peek ahead to verse 32... It says that Jesus looked around to see who had done it. That clearly, clearly tells me Jesus did not know who it was. So he asked the question, back again in verse 30, who touched my garments? As we're going to see, he's intending to make not only this woman public, but also her healing. But I want you to pause for a moment with me and remember, because it's easy to forget, that Jairus is still standing around this whole time. Did you forget about that? There can be no doubt that Jesus asked the question, I think not only to develop the woman's faith to full maturity, because clearly she had some superstition to her faith, but also to develop Jairus' faith as well. Because in a matter of a few minutes, Jairus' worst fear is going to be realized as he waits for Jesus to deal with this woman talking to the disciples, talking to the crowds, talking to this woman, he knows that time is slipping away. And soon the messengers are going to come, as we saw last week, to reveal to him that in fact his daughter had died. This was just as much about Jairus and developing his faith as it was about developing the faith of the woman. And I just want to ask you this question this morning. Where are you at in your faith? How is your faith today? Do you trust God's timing? 
Or do you try to force a solution due to impatience with God? Do you have a tendency to view your needs as greater than others? I think we all do to some degree. Would you agree with that? And I think Jairus, it would only be natural that he'd be more concerned about his daughter in this moment than this woman, but her suffering was real. Just remember this. Jesus has enough power to go around all. He has not forgotten your needs. He sees you on your knees in prayer, beseeching his faith. And though Jesus is preoccupied with millions, patiently wait for him. He will deliver you. Give him time. As Jairus looked at his watch, he needed to learn something of compassion here. Compassion for others and trust in Jesus. I have no doubt, as I said, that as Jesus dealt with this woman, he's dealing with Jairus. And yet both he and the woman have imperfect faith that Jesus could and would deal with for His glory, and He does. But this episode, having moved us from the woman's painful desperation and her planned decision and her private deliverance, now takes us to the highlight. The woman's day would only get better, but at a moment she was fearful. We move from the painful desperation and planned decision and private deliverance, now number four, to a public discovery. A public discovery, verses 31 through 33. Now, just listen to this. The woman obviously wasn't going to respond to the question, right? The question Jesus asked at the end of verse 30, who touched my garment? She's not going to ask that or answer that because she wants to remain anonymous. But the disciples give a rather sarcastic and exasperated response. Notice it in verse 31. They say to Jesus, you see the crowd pressing around, and yet you say, who touched me? Luke 8.45 reveals that Peter, who else, would be the one who spoke on behalf of the disciples. Luke records his words as saying, Master, the crowd surrounds you, and you are being pressed in on. So when Jesus says, who touched me? He is, of course, speaking about who physically touched me. But the disciples are short-sighted here because Jesus is not only speaking about a physical touch with a finger, but also a spiritual touch by faith. Jesus, I think, is implying in this statement, who touched me? Not merely who touched me physically, but who was it in this crowd who had the touch of faith? Who was it? Disciples are short-sighted. They're thinking literally. They're thinking literalistically. They're thinking about the people and the crowd and the pressing and the crushing. They have no clue that someone in the crowd has more faith than in some measure even the disciples. Someone there had faith, brushed up against Jesus, and Jesus is going to figure out who it was. Notice verse 32 And he looked around, that is Jesus, to see who had done it. (laughs) I find this humorous. You remember um, in verse 35, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But verse 36, overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Don't fear, only believe. Just as Jesus ignored the messengers who came from the house who had no faith, Jesus ignores the response of the disciples who clearly have no faith that something miraculous has taken place here. 
And so he begins to look around to see who had done it. That Greek word, looked around, it's a Greek verb with a tense meaning that he kept looking around to find who it was. He was searching, he was seeking. I attended Southern Seminary and I used to walk through the halls of Southern Seminary down a wing named after A.T. Robertson, the eminent, preeminent Greek professor with a big portrait, I'll never forget, hanging on the wall as I walked to Greek class. And in his work on Mark chapter 5, he translates the phrase this way, Jesus kept looking around to find out who it was. That's an amazing picture, isn't it? Jesus is gazing eyes, searching the crowd, intent to find who touched him. The woman standing there, probably looking away, because her plan of being healed had worked. True enough. But now it was being discovered, and it was being discovered publicly. He would put her on display. You see, Jesus sensed the difference between the pushing and shoving touches of the crowd and the touch of this woman. The other touches were rooted in fickle hearts. This touch was rooted in a faith-filled heart. She felt his healing. He felt her hurt. Reminiscent of Isaiah 53.4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Matthew tells us, by the way, that that prophecy of Isaiah was to fulfill what was spoken by Isaiah, that he took our illness and bore our diseases. This woman knows that she has taken his pain, her pain away. So she comes forward to be discovered, revealing her faith. Notice verse 33. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. She knows she's not getting away. Jesus isn't going anywhere till he finds out her identity. She's fearful. She's trembling. Why? Because she was an unclean woman. She wasn't practicing the social distancing laws. She had touched someone, namely Jesus. And according to the law, that would make someone unclean. I like this because her conscience gets the best of her. True believers have tender consciences. She couldn't keep this to herself. She would risk uh, the shame. She would risk um, the penalty. Even for a woman to speak publicly would have been overbearing. And this woman, who no one wanted to hear from or see because of her uncleanness much more so, but with physical strength now that she was healed and spiritual strength now that her faith is growing, she comes before Jesus. And notice verse 33 says, she fell down before Him. That's a similar notation, isn't it? The demon falls down. The demon-possessed man falls down before Jesus. Jairus falls down before Jesus. She falls down before Jesus in total prostration. And verse 33 says, I love this, she told the whole truth. She had been made clean by Jesus and now she comes clean to Jesus. The whole truth. What did she tell him? Everything. Everything. The history of her malady. How she tried this doctor and that doctor, this natural remedy, that natural remedy. She told of her plan to touch him without being noticed and that she knew that technically she had broken ceremonial law and she was sorry for that, but that Jesus was her only hope. Can you please understand me, Jesus? You were my only hope. Jesus could have said all of that, but He wanted to hear it from her, right? 
because her testimony gave clarity to the fact that only Jesus could heal the incurable. He wanted this woman to confess that so that her faith would grow larger, and he wanted those in the crowd to see that this woman was at the end of her rope. So Jesus makes this private miracle public, a public discovery. And as I said, the woman had weak faith, but it was real faith. And yet she had not yet up to this point, glorified Jesus publicly. Isn't that always what is necessary in true discipleship? A public profession of Jesus? I don't know if she was even a believer at this point until she came to Jesus. She wasn't any different than the nine lepers that went away. There was only one that came back and what? Glorified and praised God? Jesus? Giving Him thanks. Now she's coming to give thanks. So many today want physical healing, a problem solved, a crisis averted through prayer, but they want nothing to do with God. They don't want it. They don't want discipleship. They don't want to bear their cross. They don't want the shame that will come, the reproaches, and that's why many have foxhole conversions. Maybe they want physical deliverance and they pray to God, but without faith, they'll have no spiritual deliverance in a relationship. Jesus is sovereignly drawing this woman to Himself. Do you see that? She had an earthly type of faith, enough faith to be healed physically, but if Jesus had not called her forth, she would have never come and she would have never had true saving faith. This would have been a single healing, primarily on the physical, not a double healing. Now she's going to be healed spiritually. Jesus said in John 12, 32, He would draw all people to Himself. Jesus said in John 6, 37, All that the Father gives to Me will come to Me, and whoever comes to Me I will never cast out. If you hear the voice of Jesus and you come to Him, you reveal that you've been chosen by Him. You get no credit. Jesus gets it all. But the woman touched His tassel. So what? So what? That was an earthly faith based upon a physical deliverance, not spiritual. She had believed in her heart that Jesus could heal her, but that's only half the equation. Now she must confess with her mouth Jesus is Lord, and that's really exactly what she's doing. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. She's not ashamed to come to Jesus. She's not ashamed to come to the one that healed her, to give thanks to Him, to confess her hopelessness to, and to find true salvation in. Again, I want to go back to what I said earlier. You might not have perfect faith, but none of us have perfect faith. All faith is imperfect. That's not the question. Perhaps this woman's faith was presumptuous. Oh, I will touch Jesus and He'll never know and I'll be healed. Perhaps it was superstitious. Got nothing better to do. Nothing else has worked. Perhaps it was spontaneous I better do it now in spite of that weak, carnal faith. The Lord rewarded it, didn't He? The Lord rewarded her faith. You think she understood anything about the Trinity? You think she understood the intricacies of election and predestination? Do you think she knew anything about the atonement of Christ or the hypostatic union regarding Christ's Incarnation? 
She didn't know any of that. All she knew, all she knew is that she was desperate and she needed Jesus or she would remain hopeless. True faith was clearly present. The Bible says if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can be saved. You can be delivered. This is why children can be saved at an early age and often are. And shame on the church for waiting until someone is 23 years old to baptize them when clearly they've made a public profession of faith since they were we little ones. Faith. We can't even take credit for it, right? You can't take credit for your faith. You don't have perfect faith. You still don't have perfect faith. This woman didn't have perfect faith. But her faith um, is rewarded. She didn't walk away and try to remain hidden. You can't be a Christian apart from publicly declaring Jesus as Lord. I really think that Psalm 50 is fulfilled. I want you to turn back with me to Psalm chapter 50. Just for a brief moment, we'll go to our last point in a second. But in Psalm chapter 50, there is a verse tucked away that I think is fulfilled in this woman. Psalm 50. Notice uh, the psalmist says in verse 15, and uh, the psalmist is speaking on behalf of God here. The psalmist says, Call upon me in the day of trouble. Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you. That's a promise. And you shall glorify me. Call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. That's this woman, right? She called upon the Lord to be healed. He delivered her. And what did she do? She came back and glorified Jesus Christ. That's always what true believers do. They never take credit for their salvation. All of the glory goes to God. She called on Him by touching Him. He delivered her. She came back and glorified Him. And that's why the episode ends in a beautiful way. This episode is telling, isn't it? It tells of a painful desperation, a planned decision, a private deliverance, a public discovery. Verse 34, a permanent declaration. A permanent declaration. Rather than responding with a reprimand, Jesus tenderly addresses this woman who, by the way, could have been older than him. Notice what he calls her. He says, verse 34, Mark says, He said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. That title, daughter, is no doubt meant to connect us with the little girl of Jairus, who was the daughter of Jairus. But there's much more to this. This woman had become a child of God. She had been born again. She had been converted. She had true saving faith. And how do I know that? Because Jesus calls her daughter. And also, notice He says, your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well. Now, there is no power in faith. I hope you know that. If our doctrine is right, we will affirm that faith is never the efficient cause of our salvation. It's only the instrumental cause. We're saved through our faith but not technically because of our faith. And that's a critical difference. 
God declares a sinner righteous in justification, not because there is a righteousness in our faith, but because He gives to us faith. Otherwise, that turns faith into a work. That works against Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. What is a gift of God? Faith is a gift of God. God doesn't so much respond to our faith in saving us, but rather to what His Son did for us through the atonement. So faith is the instrumental cause because through faith we take hold of Christ and His work done on our behalf. But it's Christ, not our faith, which is the efficient cause of our justification. And this is a picture of that very thing. Jesus says, Your faith is the instrument but you have been made well. Now, do you remember, I pointed out to you back in verse 23, come and lay your hands on her, Jairus says, so that she may be made well. Verse 28, she said, if I touch his garments, I will be made well. That Greek word is the Greek word sozo. Sozo. And that Greek word is the Greek word that the Bible uses to describe the salvation of God. This is a double miracle. She was healed physically. She was saved spiritually. It's exactly what Jesus is saying. It's a permanent declaration. Behind that Greek term sozo is um, Hebrew and Aramaic terms. That's the language Jesus would have preached in, by the way, would have been Aramaic. The term yeshaw is the word, Aramaic word, Hebrew word for sozo. It's a variant of the Hebrew name Yeshua. Yeshua which is the name for Jesus. We could put it this way. Her faith had made her saved by Yeshua. And her faith had made her one with Yeshua. That is with Jesus. Jesus the Savior. Jesus the one who brings salvation. And this healing, physical and spiritual, is permanent. Notice the end of verse 34. He says, Go in peace and be healed of your disease. The verb tense means a permanent healing. The flow of blood never returned again. And notice, Jesus pronounces this Old Testament Levitical benediction. Go in peace. Go in peace. It's what the priest said. Eli used that phrase, Eli the priest. Go in peace. Go in peace. The shalom of God eternally resting on this woman. Other trials would surely come for her. Jesus wasn't saying you're never going to have trials again. And Jesus is not telling you as a Christian you won't have trials. But what He is telling you is that in spite of your trials, if you have Jesus, you have permanent peace. Permanent shalom. The eternal priestly benediction of Jesus rests upon you. Because of his words and his touch. This woman had been restored to society, restored to fellowship with God's people, but most importantly, restored to God. She had been reconciled to God. You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. This woman trusted in Jesus as her Savior. I would tell you this morning. Don't stay lost in the crowd. That's what this woman wanted. If you hear the voice of Jesus, run to Him. 
run to him, no matter how weak your faith may be. Because there is no remedy, there is no cure for your sin apart from Jesus Christ. You are not saved because of your faith, but you are saved through your faith. You must demonstrate faith. You must believe. Go to Him. He takes our illnesses upon Him. He bears our diseases. Fling yourself upon His merciful touch. To be freed from sin's misery, Satan's bondage, to receive eternal life, And like this woman, fall down before Him in worship, both by life and by lip. Praise Him. Glorify Him. We're commanded to do that. That's what true Christians do. Forget social distancing. The Bible says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. God wants you to come near to Him. And coming near to Him means you come near to His people. And together we lift holy hands and we praise Jesus Christ for what He has done for us regardless of the shame heaped upon us from the world, regardless of the rejection, persecution, whatever may come. This woman wanted to remain hidden. But guess what? There was something within her that said, you can't remain hidden. You are obligated to glorify Christ. You know what that something was? It was the Holy Spirit that birthed her anew into the kingdom of God. She was drawn like a magnet to her king. And she comes before him in prostration. She called upon Him. Psalm 50, He delivered her. Psalm 50, she glorified Him. Psalm 50. Have you glorified Jesus today? For behold, today is the day of salvation. God has not promised to save you tomorrow. You have heard the Gospel today. And if you feel the weight of conviction in your conscience, do not run Do not hide in the crowd. Go to Jesus. Confess it all. Tell the whole story. And glorify Him. For He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And He is the Savior of the most desperate and worst of sinners. Let us pray. Father, what a precious story. A private miracle made public. Lord, so that your Son could be glorified. So that the crowd that day and that woman that day who was healed could recognize the Holy Son of God for who He really was. Lord, we thank You for this story because it gives us hope. It gives us hope in the midst of, Lord, the pains of life, but even more importantly, Lord... uh, The fact that apart from Christ, we remain separated from you, our holy God. So, Lord, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that uh, in your grace, you have sent your only begotten Son into the world to free us from our sin, to forgive us, to heal us. You have borne both our sorrows and our sin to provide deliverance. Lord, you want our private, secret, spiritual, unseen new birth to be made public. And I pray if there are any here who haven't made it public, they would do it today so that we can rejoice with them and glorify Christ together. We thank You for this Holy Supper. Father, we pray as we now 
go to partake of it, Lord, that we would be ministered to by the very hands of Christ, that our faith might be strengthened, that the gospel might be manifest to us in these emblems, to be reminded of what He did for us sinners on the cross of Calvary. We'll give you the glory and we'll give you the praise as we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.